Dear Playbills, welcome to the podcast that One Direction doesn't want you to hear. It's monkeys and playbills, y'all. Hello, everybody. You're confused. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. And I'm Jillian Willems. I'm Paul DeGurse. This is a show about Broadway musicals that ran for 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. And what the heck happened? And today, we're talking about Bartram and Hill's The Story of My Life. Bartram? Hill? Don't they run a circus? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, a, like a Barnum and Bailey thing? Yeah, is that yeah. what you're doing? <laughs> That's what I'm after. <laughs> this is a cool... Is this the first musical from Canadian creators that we've had on the show? I was actually trying to reflect on that because technically, yeah. did we not talk about the one at the Charlottetown Festival? We did in a Reviver Die. In a Reviver Die. We did Cronenberg. Cronenberg. Which one's Cronen- the director? Cronenberg's the beer. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Corona. David Cronenberg is the director. Cronenberg 1782 was the Hamlet rock right. opera. Rockaby Hamlet. Rockaby Hamlet. <laughs> Those of you joining us for the first time, that voice is producer Daff. Producer <laughs> Daff produces our show in partnership with the Village Conservatory for Music Theatre, the Crescent Arts Centre, and the Canada Arts Council. Thank you to all of them for their wonderful support. Do we get to talk about whatever we want now? I kind of think we have to. <laughs> thanks, Canada Council. Right, thanks. So this is unique, this one, yep. in that we haven't, as far as either of us know, and Daph can fact check this yep. for us, have not done a full episode on a Canadian musical before. And that's what this is. This is the story of my life from creators Neil Bartram and Brian Hill both of whom are Canadian citizens. One of them was born in Canada. One of them was born in England, but mm. Canadian through and through. And the initial development of this show was in Canada as well. So let's talk a little bit about where it played, how long it played, and then we can yeah. get into the history of it. Yeah, let's do it. The story of my life or the story of One Direction, a tale of a, a boy band. No, I'm just kidding. That's a tale of five beautiful young men <laughs> with baby faces and strong jawlines at the same time. Singing high. Uh, okay. <laughs> the story of my life. Previews began at the Booth Theater on February 3rd, 2009. It opened on February 19th, 2009, and it closed on February 22nd, 2009, oh. after 19 previews and five performances. Those ones are always brutal because that means they posted closing before opening night. I was actually going to ask about that. They must have. Because a part of me goes, do you let them open? And then the next morning you're like, okay, tell them at the toward the end of previews. Like, hey, I don't think this is going to see the end of this week. Like how? Like my gut is you tell them right before the half before opening night. (laughs) So with 30 minutes before they go on stage, you mention it. Just in passing, you're like, hey, oh knock, my. knock, It's your, this is your 30, and also we're closing. Also, we're closing before oh. the end of the week. Oh, that is what an intense atmosphere to bring into your last oh, show. Right? <laughs> oh. This is going to be wild because for a show so recently done, this mm-hmm. was, what is that now? 13 Just 13 years, years ago? Yep. There's very little documentation of the creation of this show pre-Broadway. Exactly. It seems like, and we'll get into this further, already as they were heading to Broadway, they had their sights set on, we're going to license this to regional theaters and this is where Mm. it's going to make its money. 
Interesting. So it was almost as though Broadway was like not on the radar. Is that Who, what you think? I don't. I don't know, but they, they did put it up at no small expense. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but certainly, there are none of there are very few of the lead up articles and videos right. and, that everyone else, all their contemporaries, were doing at this time. Yeah. Whether that means they didn't do it, or whether that means they've, for whatever reason, I can't imagine why, but like scrubbed. Um, oh, sure. Some of that content from the internet. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. Interesting. But there's going to be, frankly, there's going to be some wild speculation on this episode because oh, we don't wait. have a ton of fact to go on. So here is where I find it interesting. So yep. this show, Story of My Life, premiered, yep. you said, at Cannes Stage? Yep. Okay. Professional premiere at the Canadian Stage in Toronto. Okay. 2006. Yep. So a part of me is like, 2006? We weren't really filming stuff yet as promo. No. Nope, like, I don't remember really starting to film promos until a couple years later. Yeah. Or like, in terms of advertising specifically for Canadian theater mm. or archiving for Canadian theater. Yeah. I don't think it was as accessible as it is yeah. today. I think that's a that's a point well taken. Case in point, uh, YouTube was invented one year earlier. Right. Yeah. I think I mentioned this on our episode on Lestat, which was yes. 04? 03 or 04, 03. And yeah. And that's the first time I remember seeing digital content for a show yes so like right around there people are just starting i watched wicked yeah. that way totally yeah i suppose the fact that we were only just starting to use the internet the way we use it now mm -hmm. is one of the factors for not having much information it also seems like maybe this didn't get a ton of coverage from our usual sources yes i agree there's no variety articles there's no, no um i stayed away from the reviews as i do on this show but there's yeah. no like preview new york times things or anything no i actually really struggled to find mm -hmm. reviews yeah. on this show like i yeah. think even the ones that i found were more anecdotal like there mm -hmm. wasn't anything from any major publications that i found another really interesting thing about the way this show was advertised and marketed is that they made no mention of the fact that Alvin is dead in the story, which is not a twist. It's right. literally the top of the show is this is, <laughs> and we'll get to the plot in a second, but yeah. this is one man struggling to write a eulogy for his be lifelong best friend. Yes. And he's like, this is this is the opening moments premise of the show. Right. Um, and it's the, and he, the ghost of his, the memory of his best friend visits him and helps him write it. Why would we you not, why would you not <laughs> mention that? That's literally the premise of the show. It's funny because in the marketing images that I found yeah. and even like the cover of their album, their cast recording, yep. it looks like a more dapper like frog and toad. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what it looks like. The adventures of yeah. Alvin and Tom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I found really funny because I'm like you're saying or to your point, it's it does not really give you an indication of this deep friendship that yeah. we're about to explore after Alvin has passed. Like, and especially if you're trying to sell a show with no other hook. Yeah. Like two fabulous Broadway stars, but not big names. Yeah. Not composers who have any history on Broadway, not an adaptation of anything. Right. Why would you not at the least, at the very least, sell it on the cool part of your premise? Or do you totally hide it and spring it on everyone at the very end of the play, which I want to talk about when we get to the book. Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> let's do a plot synopsis and let's get into this show. I love it. Five minutes on the clock. Here we go. We open on a blank stage, ostensibly. Yeah. Then lights up and we meet Tom. Mm -hmm. Right? What you know, Tom's the first thing you hear in the show. He sings it. 
That's not the first thing you hear in the show. There's some dialogue yeah. before it. That's the first, first sung thing you hear in the show. Um, Tom's writing a eulogy. It becomes clear very quickly mm-hmm. for his best friend, Alvin, who he's known since childhood. And he's having trouble writing it. He has um, he has writer's block. Yes. Um, so the memory of Alvin appears to help him figure out what to write mm-hmm. and starts to take him through. We're taken back in time through memories of Alvin's and Tom's. Mm-hmm. Um, to find out, basically, we start at the start of their friendship and go through, through the course of this 90-minute show, go through the major events, significant events in their lives as friends. Mm-hmm. So we start in their first grade classroom, where their teacher, Mrs. Remington, they both, they're both dressed up for Halloween. Um, Tom is dressed up as Clarence, the angel from um, It's a Wonderful Life. Yep. That's so specific. Oh, just Yeah, it's wait. a whole thing. And um, <laughs> Alvin is dressed up as the ghost of his dead mom. Yep. So they're both like the weirdos in the class. So yeah. Mrs. Remington, who's ostensibly a good teacher, mm-hmm. is like, hey, you guys should sit together at lunch. And yeah. they become best friends. So then we get to experience them growing up a little bit. Uh, Tom wants to be, decides he wants to be a famous writer because he's given, is it Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer? The Adventures of Tom, Tom Sawyer, Sawyer yeah. I think. I think so too. He's given, I'm pretty sure it's Tom Sawyer. It might be Huckleberry Finn. He gets, Tom gets this book from Alvin because Alvin's dad owns a used bookstore, mm-hmm. decides he wants to be a writer. They have a moment where they explore the um, theory, uh, the uh, chaos theory mm-hmm. about um, butterfly flapping its wings. Yes. That's going to be important later because then it gets foggy. Then it gets a little foggy in the middle because then does Thomas move? So to Tom the city? is sort of like on Alvin because Alvin's a bit unique in his thoughts. Yeah. And that's totally. where the butterfly thing comes in because right. Alvin is like. Ah, look, a butterfly can flap its wings and make a difference. What about me if I do this? And then Tom is like, you're weird. Stop being weird. We're going to high school. That's right. And then, yeah. Totally. Throughout this whole thing, Alvin is eccentric. Alvin's eccentric and Tom's kind of a little more straight down the middle. Yes. So they're in high school, but then... What's the next big story? No, you're right. College. Tom go- leaves college. to go to college. Tom goes to college and Alvin takes over, his, goes to work at his dad's bookstore. Correct. At the used bookstore. Takes over the used bookstore. And then a few years later, Tom's a successful author now. Yes. And he invites Alvin to come visit him in the city. Mm-hmm. With Tom's fiance. Totally. And Alvin's so excited and he's calling Tom all the time. Um, and then finally Tom freaks out and he's like, actually, you know what? Don't come. It's very sad. Ugh. Immediately after that, Tom also breaks up with his fiance mm-hmm. and kind of stops talking to Alvin. Yeah, becomes very withdrawn. Yeah. He ends up sneaking back to his hometown and sneakily watches Alvin give a eulogy for his father who's died, for Alvin's father who's yeah. died. And is a real dick and is just mm-hmm. like, rather than being there for his old friend, sits and watches and is jealous of him for how well he tells stories yeah. while he's doing the eulogy. Ugh, um, it's just gross. And then we're at the end of the story, and it's or at the end of the play rather, and it's revealed that Alvin, uh, the the circumstances surrounding Alvin's death, or death is mysterious. Correct. He fell off a bridge, um, and there is question of whether whether he died by suicide, whether he jumped off the bridge, or mm-hmm. whether he fell off the bridge, or whatever the case may be. And there's some like wonderful life thing there with the bridge. Yeah, that's um kind of a recurring thematic element. And then it ends with them remembering um making snow angels together. Mm-hmm. And Thomas beginning to actually write the eulogy. Yes. Um, the, the, the whole recurring subplot that I forgot to mention is that Thomas has writer's block. This is why he's having this mental yes, breakdown. Which is also yeah. the name of the bookstore. Is writer's block. Yeah. The writer's block. Because That's it takes up name. a whole city block. It's a double That's entendre. Right. That's a great name for I a bookstore. I do love that part of it. And I think you did it. Did I do it? I got 10 seconds left. <gasps> um, It's fine. It's okay. It's pretty good. <laughs> 
there's like a set conceit where um, Thomas is pulling books off the bookshelf. Yeah. For um, them, those are, these are the memories. That's okay. it. And that's it. That's story of my life. 90 minutes, one act, in and out, two people in the whole show. If we wanted to license this show tomorrow, what would what would it say? <laughs> so mtishows.com, yep. where we license this from. So I'm yep. glad you said that. This is what they say. The story of my life follows the friendship of Alvin and Thomas, two men from a small town. These lifelong friends are reunited after Alvin's mysterious death. <laughs> They're reunited. Okay. Sorry, that's yeah. just funny. A funny way to... <laughs> yeah, it absolutely that. is. In the abstract world of his mind, Thomas struggles to write Alvin's eulogy while recounting the many turns that their lives have taken since meeting as children. Alvin searches through the manuscripts and stories in Thomas's mind yep. to lead him on a journey of remembrance. Through music and song, these two friends recount their adventures, explore their past dissonance, and ultimately discover what is at the base of every strong friendship, love. Aw, that's a pretty good synopsis, all told. Yeah, they also have another one, which is this. A man struggles to write his best friend's eulogy in this emotional tribute to the people who change our lives. (laughs) 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 I like that, too. That's nice. Not wrong. Not wrong. All right. Well, that's the show. Let's, uh, are we ready to get into it? Yeah, let's totally get into it. So, as we mentioned, (laughs) this... A uh, musical premiered at the Canadian stage in 2006. Totally. Starring Brent Carver. Yep. Who listeners will remember mm. from Parade. Canadian uh, Canadian stage legend Brent Carver. We can't find it, but we're pretty sure as Alvin. That's the track that he seems yeah. to fit. Yeah. I yeah. think that makes sense. Like if we were casting it, that's yeah. where we'd put him. Absolutely. And uh, Jeffrey Kuhn. Um, so from there, it was... Uh, then it was produced by National Alliance for Music Theaters Festival of New Musicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was, that's somewhere in the States. That's a big old thing. It's a big old new musical, like, um, incubation zone. Cool. Yeah. And that was in 2007. And then in November of 2008, at Goodspeed Musicals in Connecticut, no, they picked up what would become the Broadway cast. Totally. So Will Chase and Malcolm Getz. Yeah. Uh, Goodspeed, another company that is dedicated to developing musicals usually in like a later stage of development mm. getting them from the musicals written and it's good to broadway they did yes. this for come from away they did this famously for annie back in the day oh cool and so then it was of course on broadway in 2009 for a very for a short amount of time <laughs> and then it's actually had a ton of regional productions since yeah. Like, more than I could even count on Wikipedia. Which makes good sense when you think about it. Two people, you can cast, like, pillars of your community that audiences love. They Um, can play their own instrument. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Do a a story of my life, a two-person show there, they also play the instruments. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. That's so funny. I have a very good idea. Let's make the actors musicians. Um, Are we doing book music lyrics first? (laughs) Yeah, probably. Uh, I will say this, it I find find it interesting how often it's been translated. Like they've yes. got a German translation. I think they're doing one in Italy this year. I saw that as well. Yep. I f- I just find that so exciting and I interested to maybe unpack why it's resonated so much with so many people. Yeah. Um and how it continues to have such life. Yeah. Which is exciting I'm very, to me. I'm very interested as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Book, music, and lyrics. Book, music, and lyrics. Book by Brian Hill, who is the resident director of Lion King. 
What he a was, lucrative gig. And he's he's like a, a Disney guy in that way as well. Yeah. He was resident director on Little Mermaid for a little Correct. while. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That to me is the ultimate dream where you can have something that's like pretty stable. Oh, absolutely. And consistent and then get to do like little side projects. Getting a residency on a, on a show like that just seems like a dream. Oh, what, what a, a dream. gig. Music and lyrics by Neil Bartram, who you mm-hmm. mentioned before. I think it's his only like Broadway credit, but I... I don't imagine it will be his only one, if that makes sense. Like, yep. I feel like there's more I on feel, the way. I feel the same way. He's, Bartram and Hill have written a few other cool uh, cool shows, but I believe this is the only one that saw has seen the Broadway stage. If I am not mistaken, Neil Bartram or maybe both of them, Bartram and Hill, are working on Bedknobs and Broomsticks, oh, the musical. I, say, I believe it's both of them. We do need to take a moment because yep. I said Bedknobs and Broomsticks yep. to acknowledge the passing of our dear Angela Lansbury. One of the absolute greatest. Who literally made my childhood and I'm sure many others. And then also in adulthood, I started to really understand and admire her abilities as just like an artist moving through the world. Yeah. And I am sad to see her go, but I feel honored that we have so much evidence of the work that she left behind. Right. Everyone go listen to the um, the original movie soundtrack of Beauty and the Beast or something. Oh, yes. Just listen to how you set the definitive version mm, of a song right away. Totally. Oh. Don't tell Celine Dion you said that. Okay. <laughs> 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 so they are working on Bedknobs yep. and Broomsticks, the musical, which mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of excited about because I think the story lends itself really beautifully to a stage production. I agree. I think we'll that see. could potentially be really nice. They wrote a n- real nice song cycle that was commissioned by Sheridan College mm-hmm. in the kind of mid-2010s. Sheridan College, another place where there's a lot of new musical development going on, especially yeah. at that time. I love that. The piece is called The Theory of Relativity, and it's kind of this cool thing where it's like, it was commissioned specifically for college-age students. Mm. As theater educators, I think that's friggin' rad. That is and cool. And it's a cool piece. There's a lot of really interesting stuff. I'm going to recommend it to our students. I haven't in the past because I've never really thought about it. But revisiting it now as I revisited Bertram and Hill, it's a cool piece. Nice. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, the music was orchestrated by Jonathan Tunick. We might have talked a little bit about him on Anyone Can Whistle, but I can't recall if he was working with Sondheim yet. He might not have been. Jonathan Tunick is one of the most legendary orchestrators in Broadway. Yep. I feel very passionately about him. And in my opinion, with Chorus Line, also with Company, set the sound for the 70s and 80s in a huge way. Listen to the original orchestrations for nothing. It's just, it's outstanding. It just, and it's like, there it is. There's the next 15 years ahead of us. It just like spins. Yeah, absolutely. His work on Story of My Life is fantastic. It's a beautiful chamber orchestration. I admire it a lot. It's it's elegant. It's Mm -hmm. quirky. Yeah. It's everything you would want a chamber orchestration to be honestly i would recommend anyone with a, even a passing interest in broadway orchestration first of all send me an email there's like three of us so you should come and talk <laughs> sometime <laughs> and b check out story of my life just for that the orchestrations make it worth it i actually found this orchestration to be very obvious yeah it like is. in the sense that if a person who maybe doesn't mm-hmm. fully have their ear turned to that kind of a thing could still identify a lot of aspects of it that make it great i don't know what do you think i think that's a fantastic observation i totally agree that's one reason to recommend it i think the reason for that is more much more obvious than a lot of tunics orchestrations 
And I think that's because it's a two-person show. Yeah, okay. I know I'm, I'm in the process of orchestrating a two-person show right now. After Light the Musical, come check it out. And there's so much necessity to provide musical interest because you don't have vocal textures or you have you have some vocal textures at yeah. your disposal, obviously, but not many. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of value in creating an orchestration that is not flashy, but obvious. I like that you used obvious. Obvious yeah. is the exact word mm-hmm. um, just to make the show interesting. Think back in your head to story of your story of my life that we've just both just listened to. The songs don't necessarily get that samey. And that's a yeah. lot of Jonathan Tunick's work. Oh, I that's, agree. He's working a double overtime. That's not a shot at um, Neil Bartram. Um, for writing songs that are samey, quote unquote. But um, <laughs> Jonathan Tunick really does a ton of heavy lifting yeah. to give this show a musical arc. Absolutely. So obviously we both have pretty strong positive feelings about <laughs> Jonathan Tunick's orchestrations. Well, but do you have any thoughts on the music and lyrics while so we're at it? Is it maybe already obvious how we both feel <laughs> that we started with the orchestration <laughs> as we were talking? There is nothing wrong with the music and the lyrics in this show. Very functional. Very functional. For my taste, Mm -hmm. I prefer a little more controversy in my um, music. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. With this music and these melodies and these lyrics. So you can maybe put some of this at the feet of um, Brian Hill as well. Mm -hmm. As soon as like an idea starts or like a verse starts, you know how it ends. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? You can see the ending from the start. Yes. And then it happens. And on one hand, that's very satisfying. That's really easy to listen to. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to listen to. But it doesn't necessarily reward a more in-depth listening experience. Yeah. Like, I don't know that I want to go back and have another listen to the soundtrack. Like, I think I'm okay. Like, I felt all the tempos were pretty samey. Yeah. So it does fall into that that same mm-hmm. speed. Everything sort of, like, just is the same tempo. <laughs> it's that contemporary thing. Contemporary yeah. Music where it's like the a speechy thing. Yeah, exactly. So I found that hard because I don't mind if there's melodically not as much variety, but I will get lulled pretty quick if everything's sort of moving at the same pace. Yeah, that's a really good observation. I can I can get behind that. Yeah. But I will say I I kind of liked the lyrics. Yeah. Like they are most certainly not the worst lyrics I've heard or talked that we've talked about on this podcast. And I actually might even say they're among the better lyrics of contemporary musical theater. <gasps> There's some really like, funny stuff. I their rhyme schemes are great. Yeah. The timing sometimes, like the way they rhyme gets switched up, which I appreciate. Yeah, there's something about it that I just was like Oh, oh, I'm glad. Like, someone worked really hard on these lyrics, and it shows. And that's not to say as well, I should say. I'm going to shout out some lyrics in a second. That's not to say that there was not hard work done on the music. No, or even certainly that not. Music, I, feel, I feel like I just came down really hard on the music. It's nice. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Writing a musical is hard, and Neil Bartram did a good job. It's mm-hmm. really nice. Since we're on a podcast where we have to delve, we are forced yeah. to delve into these things, I absolutely just want more more harmonic interest or melodic interest or something. It's yeah. like, you, you wrote the skeleton to the songs, now give it some spice, you know? They only sang together for like 12 bars of the whole show, hey? At the very end there, right? And uh, the end of a like, maybe the fifth last song they sang, yeah. like the last line together and they had a harmony. Then a couple songs before the end they sang together yeah. where there's a harmony. And at the very end, there's no harmony though. There's nothing. They sing it it's all unison. in um, in unison. Which is not the choice I would make, frankly. I don't know. I'm not sure I love it as a choice, but I can see why it was made I see dramaturgically. why it was made. Yeah. Uh, my favorite lyric 
of Bartram and Hills in this show. The song called, is called Mrs. Remington. It's about how the two I met. I hope, okay. And it's, I um, hope it's what I think it is. They're talking about Mrs. Remington, who's a very sweet teacher who also um, had some facial hair. Yes. And it's, I'm, maybe she was menopausal. Lack of estrogen will cause a lot of odd conditions, some acute. The irony would never face her, namesake of a famous razor, and to be so facially her suit. Yes. That's very funny. That's it's a very funny good. line. <laughs> like, even though I don't love the idea that we have a whole song devoted to a beautiful teacher who made such a difference in their lives and then we're like giggling we about her beard. Her, but um, it's like, her facial hair. But like, There's, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate 100% I'm glad you said that. I feel the same way. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like, yeah. it's very Gilbert and Sullivan. Absolutely it's very modern it major. Yeah. But contemporized, which I love. Yeah. That's them at their best, mm. is using the fact that you can see the end to their advantage. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, in the case of this um, this line, that acute is going to be the rhyme. Yeah. But because you can see the rhyme, you're, it's the reason we rhyme. We do rhymes yeah. in there. Your, your brain starts working and being like, all right, so what is, how does it rhyme with acute? And then all of a sudden, all these other words are going off in your head and you're overwhelmed for a second. And you've been tricked into being deeply invested in this story <laughs> in this song. Yes. I wish that their whole show, that, that this whole show showed the same musical and lyrical effectiveness that um, these moments do. There's, right. and there's a lot of moments like that that are really nice. Okay, let's talk about the book while we're here. Yes, because yes, I think please. we're like, this is the time. I think that was the exact time. Okay, okay. Why doesn't Thomas just tell his friend what's going on? Because the reason he gives for... Telling Alvin not to come to the uh, to the city. Do they, they ever say which city it is? They it, never say which city. They just it, say the city. It seems like it's like New York, and then they live in like upstate. Right? Yeah, is yeah, kind yeah. of what I like what I always Buffalo. assume. Yep, totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So yeah, the reason they give is Alvin's like I haven't I haven't told my fiance that you're coming, and this is all too busy. I don't think he actually says that. Doesn't he just like? Doesn't the song go like? I think I'm gonna like it here. And then he's like, <laughs> this don't could come. Be my end yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not uh, wrong. Whatever yeah. you said. Yeah. And then he's like, don't come. And then there's like a couple more lines of song, but there's actually no like, don't come because I'm I'm really struggling with my girlfriend. And the, I, like, I don't remember an explanation. I just I just listened to it. Okay. it. There's definitely nothing like I'm really struggling or anything. Right. But there's there's just the vaguest like Oh, a vague as thing. As okay. it's all piling up, he's like Oh, and this, and this, and this, don't come. Oh, I see, I see what you're saying. And it's not, it's not, it's never even anything like, oh, I'm having, me and my fiance are having trouble. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, oh, and I haven't told her that you're coming and right. this and that. One way or another, it's, I think it's the biggest mistake of this book and this play. Yeah. I found it, it's, I find it very affecting. It's so infuriating. I'm so crushed for Alvin. I'm yeah. so sad. I just can't get behind Thomas for the rest of the show. Oh, I know. Me neither. So like. Not at all. He breaks up with the fiance right after that, and it's this really long, meandering song that he's singing. And the whole time, I'm like, "You tool!" Yeah, you couldn't have let your friend was the whole song before that that Alvin's singing is about how excited he is to just come and hang out in New York with you. You couldn't have just taken a few days and hung out with your old friend, man. Come on, he's like, so excited. <laughs> I just, it is so yeah, it is yeah. so frustrating. And then, like you're saying, I am not on Thomas's side. Yeah, I don't think he makes any discoveries or changes to who he is yeah. for the rest of the show. I mm. mean, I at least didn't get that impression, but no. maybe there's more to it that I missed. Yeah. But I don't feel like he is redeemed. Yeah. And I feel like then everything I have just seen leading up to that moment is mm. all bullshit. 
And I'm like, Alvin's too good for you. He wasted so much energy lifting you up and you did nothing in return. This is the cool story of Alvin Kelby, who seems like a really nice bookstore owner, and his dick friend Thomas. (laughs) And then I'm mad. And I'm mad because everyone said it was about love and I only saw one way. Yeah. It's, I agree completely. And, And then after that, he goes... Alvin's dad dies Ugh. and Thomas doesn't even he comes back for the funeral and doesn't even like hides in the back and watches the eulogy without saying hi Thomas you're I know you're insecure we see it it's everywhere but like you just need to like do better so that's kind of the the big challenge of this show for me is at its core I mean the story resonates obviously mm-hmm. I'm affected by it I'm affected by this friendship we clearly um, have a lot of feelings yeah, about it which, so that's done well but it certainly does nothing to win me back to Thomas's side, which Absolutely. is where we should be by the end of the play. Was that what they were aiming for, do you think? Was the point of the play to have Thomas redeemed? And if not, should it be? Right. Maybe that's the question. It seems like the ending they wrote is, oh, and I remember why we were friends and how nice that was. Yeah. But Whereas you, you'd hope yeah. that the ending, with with all that stuff in the middle, you'd hope the ending should be, wow, I was a real asshole to this guy. Yeah. Like this is, this eulogy has got to be like my tribute to this friend who I was a real dick to. It has to be the best story I ever write. Yeah, absolutely. And that that doesn't really come across. So for that reason, I don't love, love the book if we're talking about it yeah. as far as story goes. Totally. As far as books go, it's fine. Yeah, I think it's, it's nice. fine. I think it's snappy. Like the show is only 90 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, uh, listeners know how we feel about a 90-minute show. Great idea. It's perfect. Perfect. Okay, here is another question I will ask. Yes. Because I have my feelings about it. Yep. Do you think that it was a good thing that we knew from the very start that Alvin was dead? I think there could be a very compelling story where we don't know right away. Mm-hmm. I think that could be a lot of fun. That's a great question. What do you think? Well, I, do, I don't know for yep. certain because I don't, like, dislike the fact that we know right away. He's writing a eulogy. Yeah. Like, I think it's a fine structure. I just wonder if, specific to the Broadway audience and in a space that big, like, maybe a person realizing they're a jerk and oh. trying to redeem themselves by way of a eulogy mm-hmm isn't enough of a twist like maybe the twist is like we see them together and they're talking about and reflecting on their friendship through the ages and then we find out toward the end because i i I think that's a fantastic observation i agree completely because as it stands right now they they do feel the need for that twist clearly because the twist they use the twist in um, quotation marks is that alvin may have jumped off a bridge Right, but, but even they never, that... They, they never clarify that and they never get into it further. That's right. You know? I actually like how they handle that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for the listeners who may may not have heard, there's a song uh, toward the end. It might even be like the second last mm-hmm. song. Thomas is asking, well, like, what happened? Like, yeah. I, I, I need to know what happened. Yeah. Was it my fault? Basically, did I do this? That is nice. That's a nice part of the show. It's a it nice, is. Yeah. And then Alvin is like... Here's what we know. You'll never know. It's like, it's a kind of a great... And I get some chills there. That's I do good. too. And there's something nice in like this guy who's been a dick being like, was this my fault? I just, 
Yep. If that was what it was going to be, maybe just go for that. That's a sad story, but yes. let's have that story. Like that actually to me is a is a really great representation of a grief process. Absolutely. Because when you are grieving, you're sort of wondering, did I was there something I could have Anything done? Anything I could have done. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No matter, yeah. And so I feel like that as a representation of that phase of grief or that stage is really effective. Yeah. I found myself quite emotional. I do too. I did too. Yep. Through that and through Butterfly, of course. But yeah, so I just, I asked myself the question of like, had I been surprised by the fact that that Alvin was dead? Yep. Would that have been maybe a more, I don't know, satisfying device to use? Like that or, and I'm not, I'm never a fan of using suicide just as a shock punch. Um, right. Dramatic thing. But maybe making it text that he um that he took his own life, which is a terrible and tragic thing to happen in yes. um in um someone's life and the life of everyone around that person. Yes. And then you can actually have the question be, how do I cope with this? Is this did I have some part in this because yeah. I drifted away from this guy? And mm-hmm. once again, that's a but that's a different story. It's a sad story. It's yeah. a different story. It might be a a more effective story though. I'd like to motion move us towards the end of this section. Sure. And by sharing one final thought. There's a song in the middle of the show called The Butterfly, which is ostensibly Tom's first novel. It's this problem that, have you ever seen the film, do you know the film Mr. Holland's Opus? No. It's with Richard Dreyfuss. But I can assume what it's about based on the name. It's about a high school music teacher. Great. um, It follows him through his career. And, um, and all the kids that um, whose lives he uh, touches. Yeah. And as he's doing this, he's writing this piece, this piece of music. Oh, great. And at the end, all his former students surprise him by getting together and playing the, the you piece. You know what? I actually might have seen this. Oh, sure. It's, a, it's like a 90s movie, like a 90s feel-good Oscar made. It's nice. I'm certain I've yeah. seen this. But the challenge is, you get to the end, and you've been building up this opus and talking about how Mr. Uh, Mr. Holland here is actually like a brilliant composer. Mm. And then they play it. <laughs> and it's like this... <laughs> dumb 90s thing oh like God. it's this, this like the uh, soundtrack to friggin angels in the outfield or something oh which is God. like fine it's not bad yeah but it's but, like but when you've been building really this to is it. you took 30 years to write this hey bud <laughs> and so this is a similar thing of like Tom, thomas is a hell of a writer he's a right. real storyteller he's incredible and then the butterfly song just uh, th- this really hit me the first time i listened to this especially i was yeah. like like, is he a children's author? Right. Does he write right, children? Right, right. Like, the, I can't imagine a contemporary adult novel, or, or I can't imagine this being letting you into a creative writing program yeah. at a major university. Oh, God, that's funny. But it's also a nice song. It, it's nice. It's it really is. nice. It's quite lovely. nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's lovely. The reason I, I liked it is yeah. because to me, it felt like one of the only moments where yeah. we saw evidence of Thomas really truly listening to and respecting Alvin. Yeah, very fair. You know? One like, more he's yeah. actually a good friend in return. Yeah, where he's like, <laughs> my friend has been championing me yeah. to just put stuff on paper and supporting me and giving me all I would need to like write good short stories. Yeah. I'll do this for him. Yeah, It's the only time really that I yeah. recall in the play that that happens. Especially because, frankly, the play heavily implies that Tom gets most of his initial ideas from Alvin. Oh, and, like it Alvin seems shows like him most, how to structure yeah. stories by telling them to exactly. him. Exactly. Tom sucks. What a what a dick. <laughs> and it's funny because I didn't hate him so much, but now that we've been talking, I know, about right? Him, I'm like, oh, I really don't like this guy. <laughs> wow, it's such a one-sided friendship. Like, how rude. So that's it. Let's give some ratings. Okay, out of ten playbills, yep. how many monkeys do you give this music and lyrics? Six and a half. Ooh, that's nice. Yep. That's yep. really nice. I feel good about that. 
I was going to say six. Yeah, it's it's really functional. It tells the story well and clearly. There's never any moments where I'm like, oh, that was a cheesy lyric. That was yeah. a bad lyric. It's just that wanting for that little spark of something extra that you see sometimes a little bit. Absolutely. That's yeah. where my head's at as well. And if it weren't for the gorgeous orchestrations, yeah. I don't know if I would not have fallen asleep. It's also worth saying maybe it would help a lot more seeing it. Oh, live, always. You know what I mean? Right, totally. Always, yeah. And then out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give this book? I think four. Ooh. I think it's... Once again, it's a fully functional play. There's nothing that I find take any special issue with, except for possibly the use of um, uh, suicide as a plot device. Yeah. But, oh, and um, being mean to poor Miss Remington, just because she's got a little bit of facial hair. Yeah. But mostly, we need to lay Thomas and the dick that he is at the feet of one of these ratings. Yeah. So I think it's going to be at the book. And I think it's this. I'm taking off like a star and a half because Thomas is a reprehensible character in retrospect. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was actually landing around a five. Great, totally. Five is a very reasonable rating for this yeah. book. Yeah. I really like small cast shows. I really like a two-hander. Yeah, so do I. And I think that, yeah, other than those few things that you brought up, Great. I yeah, I feel like it's about a five for me. That's okay. But that's okay. Let's move on to direction and direction because yep. there's no dancing. There is someone very special worth talking about. Our best friend and yours, Richard Maltby Jr. That's right, everybody. <laughs> this play was directed by Richard Maltby Jr. You're probably like, Maltby, that sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I'll um, take a vanilla one, please. <laughs> Where do we know him from, Paul? Richard Maltby Jr., we know him from being a director mm-hmm. and playwright and producer, or also lyricist, yep. although we don't think we've covered any of his lyrics on the show just yet. He had a big hand in Pirate Queen, if I recall correctly. I don't think he directed oh, it. Oh, yes. But he was one of the um, one of the major players in Pirate Queen. Uh, he was the lyricist behind Nick and Nora. And he was um, additional lyrics on Pirate Queen and like helped with the oh, translation. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So we've talked about a couple mm-hmm. Maltby things, but definitely not in his capacity as a director. Yeah. Music direction by David Holsenberg. Legend. Great Legend. Music director. And then associate director was Lisa Schreiber. So that was your, that's your creative team. A small creative team. I appreciate that. Your creative team should rarely outnumber your cast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> rarely, if ever. What I saw actually was nice. Mm-hmm. It seemed pretty simple. And the reason that I think it's a good thing is because the tendency might be to like overdo it. Yeah. Absolutely. When you've got a small Yeah, we only have two people. Let's build this up. Yeah, but I think they kind of went the other way, which I appreciate. Do you think that Richard Maltby is the one who can be credited for the uh, the books? Like that whole conceit? Maybe not. I have no idea. And the reason I would say maybe not is it's like a chicken and an egg question. Yeah. When we talk about books, are you yeah. talking about the actual set itself? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's Sorry. a fair clarification. Yep. Yeah. I'm talking about the conceit of the physical books. Right. Yeah. So in my mind, that's chicken or egg because was that a choice that was made in workshopping the original production? Is that yeah. something that was brought from CanStage? Or is stage this or a good new... speed or who knows where? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder, oh, did a designer make that choice? And then they were like, we love this. Let's build it into yeah. our play. Totally. So I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. No, we, you're right. We'll, we should discuss, we'll discuss that more during the design section. Definitely. Absolutely. So with that said, I'm 
I don't know. Based on the information we have, Richard Maltby did a fine job, I think. I would agree. Yeah. I think a fine job is the exact way to put it. <laughs> David uh, David Hulkenberg does an awesome job. It's beautiful oh, yeah. music it sounds direction. really nice. It's immaculate. The dynamics. Um, yeah. It's very clear that both the singer, even in listening to the cast recording, it's very clear that both the singers feel totally comfortable and at ease and feel comfortable moving around the music. Yeah. Um, they have a very solid foundation from uh, from David and his orchestra. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's no surprise when you look at uh, David's resume, he's one of the most in-demand conductors on Broadway today yeah. and well-earned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's and it? And that's right? it. So, like, creative team, how'd they do? Like, eight. Eight across from the board. I, I agree. Absolutely. Let's good job. Good team. job. Absolutely. Well done. Everyone go um, listen to David conduct uh, MJ the musical is what he's on right now. Oh, That's great. His. He's yeah, conducting. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he did the orchestrations and the arrangements on MJ as well. He probably finished Groundhog Day and then jumped on MJ. Was, like, and we're just work. starting to see it now yeah. after a few years of work. Okay. That makes sense. Also, something else happened between 2017 and 20, 2022. I can't I'm think not of sure what, what something that was. Who knows? Everyone's got these oh, gaps in their resume. It's really gosh. unprofessional. It's so, wild. Where was everybody? <laughs> okay. Let's move on to the design. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> Scenic design by Robert Brill. Costume design by Wade Laboissonniere. That was my best French. That was good. Lighting design by Ken Billington and Paul Tobin. And sound design by Peter Fitzgerald and Carl Casella. What do you think of this set, Jill? I love it. Yeah, right? right? I like really love the design. The set, the lighting. Costumes are fine, but they're supposed to be really pedestrian. Right, so... that's, the whole, that's the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm a huge fan of the design of this show. I think it was just super well done. Yeah, I agree completely. It's a challenging thing in a design to give a director and a choreographer spaces to play and mm-hmm. things to do, have a set that they can use, but also not overwhelm them. Yeah. It's a really, in the designs I've seen, it's a really fine balance to walk. And this one, I think, walks it perfectly. Yes. Like, it's interactive, but it's not mm-hmm. cumbersome. When you see pictures, the um, Malcolm Getz and Wheel Chase don't look swallowed up by the stage. Yeah. They don't look lost on the stage. They always look in a very specific place in physical space, which is yes. awesome. You know what it reminds me of? Hmm. Around this time as well, right around this time, another small show that didn't do very well on Broadway at all that we get the name from his title of show. Well, what, oh. were you, what did you think I was going to say? Oh, I thought we were going Daddy Long Legs. Daddy Long Legs is another great example, also around this time. Huh. Oh. Um, so many bo- And bo- all, of, all of those shows, you have beautiful designs. Yeah. You have just killer designs yeah. that make it seem not like one or two people on a stage. Totally. Or in title shows case, four people. You know what else I love about all of those designs? Mm. There's no tricks. No friggin' tricks. None of this. I get so sick of (laughs) friggin' big old shows where everything's rotating or flying in and out. Like, that's great. That's Broadway magic. That's musical theater magic. There's a time and a place. There's a time and a place for it. I'm not sick of it. Please hire me to do those all the time. I love doing them. I'm good at them. I was going to say, anytime we talk about design, you're always the first to be like, I loved all those flashing lights. I just loved them. (laughs) I think I just really like designs. I know. No, and I love that. I love that. It's a beautiful set design. Seems like a beautiful lighting design. Yeah. The sound design, we didn't hear it. So by default, we have to assume it was beautiful. Oh, probably. Um, Good costumes. Yeah. They avoid that thing that we've talked about a lot, though, with um, contemporary costumes where they look dumb where it's like oh yeah how, we i'm sorry didn't we, talk, we talked about this maybe on like margaritaville or something oh yeah it's like contemporary oh, you're trying to dress people in contemporary garb 
And it just, like, what is going on? It's like, I would not wear yellow and orange together, but thank you. <laughs> you know? Like, this is this is nice. Both of them are wearing things that just I like would... Just like button-ups, right? Button-ups, and then one of them in a really dark color scheme and one in, like, a tan color yeah. scheme. So they're very... So that you know it's a ghost. Yes, exactly. It's like you put them in taupe because ghosts wear taupe. I think they should have actually had Malcolm Getz in a sheet the oh, whole time. Oh, that would have been great. Oh, Does wow. the whole show. Or maybe in our version where we don't find out until later that yeah. he's passed, then they put the sheet on him. put the him. sheet on him. <laughs> and he does the rest of the, the show rest. in his sheet with eye holes. He's like, write what you know. And he's like, Whoa, write, write what, what you, you know, know Tom. <laughs> Christmas Carol vibes. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, okay, so uh, is it safe to say that we both have really strong positive feelings about this design? Really beautiful work. Ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. Absolutely. Ooh, good if job. If someone designed me a set like they did for Story of My Life or did a design like they did for Story of My Life, I'd be over the moon. Me too. Great work. We need to talk about the performances. We really do. Because just two people, Will Chase and Malcolm Getz. So some folks will have heard Malcolm Getz on a very similar style of show yeah. from a very similar time period called from The New Brain. A, from a very similar composer. Very similar. Um, that's certainly where I knew him from. Yes. Because The New Brain fucking rules. Oh, yeah, it's New slaps. Brain's a great show. The original ca- off-Broadway cast recording with uh, Malcolm Getz in the lead role is a stunning oh, cast recording. so good. So that's, that's Malcolm Getz's big thing. Malcolm Getz seems to be pretty choosy with his roles, actually. I don't think he's interested in being in a big old show. Yeah, yeah, okay. He, certainly, I think with his, his ability and his, um, his talent and his resume, he certainly, there's no question he's turned down those opportunities. So the Scottish play, mm-hmm. Story of My Life, Amour, Moliere Comedies, and then I guess because this is IBDB, not... I B O B D. So that's yeah, so so <laughs> new brain, no new brain, brain isn't up on it. I know uh, presumably his other and most of his other works because I feel like he's had a good career. It's just been he's got like some he's got selective. some TV as well. Yeah, he's got some good TV. I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Getz. Yeah, I think he tells a story so beautifully through his singing. Yeah, he has this way of carrying the thought all the way through to the end mm-hmm. in music. And it's really wonderful to listen to. I agree completely. I think he's a beautiful performer. And he's got like that that round mid-Atlantic thing in his yes. voice a little bit. You know what I mean? In the vowels. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Um, And it's just so friggin' charming. And he does a lot of work in this show, but really the heavy lifting is Will Chase. Yeah, which Will I Chase. was kind of surprised by yeah. because I, I know Will Chase because uh, he's had quite a career. Quite a career. But I also feel like he's been the replacement a lot or like, yeah. you know, he kind of isn't often on the original cast recording or whatever. So I know him. I know him most prominently as the last Roger in Rent. Yeah, he's right. Because he, he was the one that was filmed. He got that um, that Broadway filming and he's really nice in it. He's very good in it. He does a, does a really nice Roger. Yeah, like there's so many and, you replacement know, he went in, roles for him. Yeah, went into Something Rotten um, after. Went Which into, I missed because I saw it. The original cast. Great. Boo-hoo. With um, Christian Borrell. Yeah, great. Yeah. But um, it's interesting. Yeah, like when you go through his credits, it's a lot of, oh, replacement performer or, you went know. Went uh, to Billy Elliot for like two years yeah. as Tony, but repla- as a replacement Tony. Like it's pretty wild. It's pretty like, wild. I mean, great. That's a great career. Like oh, no, it's a no shade career. whatsoever to people going into replacement parts in musicals. None at all. But yeah, like where's. Where's the big role that, like, even for Malcolm Getz, even though it wasn't an enormous success, he's a new brain. He's um, yeah. Gordon Schwinn. 
Absolutely. Whereas Will Chase is such a talented performer. And he is talented. I think I think he's very good in this. Oh, I agree. Um, the character of Thomas is a problem, as we discussed, but <laughs> Will Chase crushes yep. left and right here. I think he's very good. He's a beautiful voice. Gorgeous voice. Especially, Again, that same amazing storytelling ability. Yeah. All, what I'd heard of him before, what I knew him from mainly was Rent, where he's doing like the Adam Pascal thing Ugh. very well. And it seems like he followed Adam Pascal a couple times. Aida. Yeah. So he did Rent, so, Aida. So he, can, like, he, yeah, can, yeah. he can step into that rock thing. Totally. Um, also start in High Fidelity, which will talk oh, about yeah. someday on this podcast. I can't wait. Maybe that's the big role you were talking about. Well, like, just, he's, well he's had that thing. That, that swing, he swung there. He swung in Story of My Life. This could have been it. Like, if this had hit, oh. he'd be Will Chase from Story of My Life. Wow. Yeah, no complaints here, other than I wonder if the two of them are too similar. Yeah. I wonder if two distinctly different voices, both actual physical singing voices and um, distinctly different, like, yeah. actual artistic voices might have played better. I'm also like, why did it have to be two white dudes? Like, there's only two people in the show. Can we figure it out? Maybe the big reveal is that they're twins. <laughs> you know how I feel about twins. <laughs> I think I think there's plenty of room in here for a um oh for a person of color in this show. And there's oh, no there would question. be I would there's no reason you shouldn't do that, especially because the show's about on such a personal level. Wouldn't you love yeah. a smart Josh Henry in this show? Oh, in which track? In like as um, uh, I would put him in yeah, Thomas absolutely. for sure. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Groovy. Okay, maybe the goal is a yeah. gentle rewrite. Yep. They're not twins. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is good. I think that's a strong choice. <laughs> But with Josh Henry, and Absolutely. we can think on who the second person would and be. And Malcolm Getz. He did great. Oh, sure. Yeah. Fine. He can stay. <laughs> yeah, he can st- um, Will Chase and Malcolm Getz both do fantastic work. Good job. Absolutely. 10 out of 10. 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. I wish they both sang higher. Yeah, but that's not their fault. No. I want to see him sing higher. <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> I want one riff. Yeah. Should we talk about yeah. the Tonys? I would love to. These are the 2009 Tonys? Correct. Okay, we have four best musical noms. Okay, in 2009. You have done two of them, I think. Like I've, I have conducted You've these conducted, shows. I think. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Yep. You're probably not. Is one of them Billy oh, Smelly? Yeah. Okay, so Billy Smelly is one. Sorry, yes, yep. one is coming totally, up. which I'll be conducting this spring. So that's one and that wins, right? That wins, yep, correct. Totally, is Billy Smelly. Yep. Because it had... A massive amount of nominations. I yeah. think it was 15 noms, yeah. I think, and 10 wins or something. And that's good. It's a, nice, it's a good show. Great. So the other one that I think you've done, but yep. maybe I'm just a bad friend and I'm wrong, <laughs> was a pretty big hit film adaptation. Is it a Disney um, production? No, not Ooh. technically. Okay. It had some heavy hitters in Okay. one in the titular role and the other as the opposite um i'm trying yeah. not because so many of my clues heavy give hitters it away. broadway heavy hitters or, yes okay. broadway heavy hitters but it's not a disney it has a lot of different characters in it very few of them are human oh do you have any more hints you can give me green is it shrek yes yes <laughs> there you go so those are the two have two beautiful shows frankly yes Shrek's a really beautiful show the next one yep is a show that you and I have talked about as being one of our favorite contemporary musicals for arrangements. It's almost entirely sung through. It has my favorite nose on Broadway. Favorite 
Oh. We were actually talking about this person I'm today. I'm really not sharp on this today. We were talking about this person today. Briefly. Jeremy so, Jordan? No. No. The other guy that's like... In, Aaron Deviant? Yes. Um, is it also a film adaptation? Nope. Nope. Oh, this is uh, Next to Normal. Yes, it is. As if Next to Normal didn't take Best Musical. I know. After it won the goddamn Pulitzer. Here's my theory. Yeah. They didn't decide who was going to win Best Musical until after the opening number. And, <laughs> and then in the opening number, when Aaron Tveit sang I'm Alive into Stockard Channing's mouth, they were like, maybe it's not the best musical. <laughs> of the three we've listed so far, Next to Normal is the best musical. It I is love the Next best one. I think it's great. The last one is a show that I don't have much experience with, but I believe okay. there was a production of it in Toronto. Is so it Rock of Ages? It is. That's a hell of a um, best musical category. Wow. So think about those four things playing on Broadway. Yeah. Okay. Think about these revivals. Can you name yeah. any revivals that were happening? No, I, I gave you a no, hint because I said Stockard Channing gets her face sung into. No, I don't. This I one's no weird. Idea. It was Pal Joey. Sure. So okay. Pal Joey revival. Yeah. Guys and Dolls revival. Sure. There was a West Side Story revival with new Spanish lyrics by Lin Manuel. That's when the Spanish West Side Story was. Yes. Great. And hair. So all of these... That hair revival's cool. And it won the Tony for Best Revival, as it should have, because I saw it and it was incredible. So think about those eight shows alone, playing all at the same time. That's a good time to go to Broadway, yeah. But it's a horrible time to go to Broadway. Do you know what I mean? When you're in Story of My Life. When the show itself... Right, it's it's a good time for an audience to go to Broadway. It's a terrible time to take a show to Broadway. That's what I mean. Oh, man. So trying to compete... And then, of course, you have your staples that are still running. You have your Wicked. You have your Phantom. You have your Chicago. This is... Jeez. Well, you're you're absolutely right. It's... The story of my life is not a bad show. As we've discussed, it's a nice show. Yep. But it doesn't go on the best musical list against those four. No. You could maybe switch out Rock of Ages, but like... Even then, Rock of Ages is a much more functional show, frankly. And when we talk about the average, like, Broadway theater goer. Yeah. It's, if you live in the surrounding area, you're only kind of, you're picking and choosing what you're seeing, probably. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to see a show every couple of days. Most tourists can maybe afford two or three. Right. So, if I'm there in February... Yep. Or January and White Christmas is still running. Yep. I'm seeing White Christmas or nine to five, which was also running at the same time. Like, or if you're going <laughs> to take a chance on a show that doesn't isn't attached to anything, yeah. it'll be next to normal. Oh, hundred percent. Like you've already got the piece that is just you're selling it on. This is really good. Just get in there and see it. Yes. Which is the same thing. Small you're gonna have cast to sell. show, beautiful set. Like you know, what more do you need? What more do you need? An audience. You need people to come see it, and Story of My Life didn't. Just didn't have. Also, I thought, fun fact, yes. there was a tie that year for Best Orchestrations. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I between, had no idea. Like, how did I miss that? Between who? So, Michael Sorobin and Tom Kitt for Next, for to, Next normal. to Normal tied with Martin Koch Those for are Billy nice Elliot. Orchestrations, too. Yep, very tied. well deserved. Excellent. I don't remember seeing that in recent yeah. memory. Okay, we have two more questions to let's, ask. Let's wrap up this. Let's wrap this sucker up. So the question I will ask is, should this be a musical? I don't want to say no, because I believe in the small musical and I believe in the musical that is, isn't, doesn't, isn't necessarily big and splashy. Yep. Yes, this should be a musical. It proves it by existing. 
It is a musical. It tells the story. It invest. It got us invested emotionally. Mm-hmm. This production may not have been perfect, and it's very easy to see why it failed. But yes, this should be a musical. Yes, what about I you? agree completely. Great. Totally. I think like had it gone to maybe off Broadway and off Broadway production, Absolutely. it might have lasted longer. This show, more than any other show we've covered, possibly speaks to, says to me like we can't keep using Broadway as the the sole indicator of a successful musical in our Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Because it just doesn't leave room for shows like this. Yeah. A beautiful show. Yes, exactly. About a theme that deserves exploration. That clearly connects to people. You look at look at all these regional productions, all these translations. Yep. This show, people connect to this show. It means something. It couldn't even live a week on Broadway. Oh, it's really sad to think yeah. about. So yeah, we both agree on that. So, is this show a flop? Is it a secret bop? Or is it so bad we have to make it stop? I would go with, it's a, it was a flop, obviously. Yep. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it like, a it's not bop. It's a bop, right? Because I don't know if it's in the same category as like Taboo, which mm-hmm. to me it's was like, like a, a bop. bop. Yeah. I would say the production was a flop. I would pay good money to see a new production of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think a production could be a bop. Mm-hmm. It, it has the potential. But there's some work to do. Yeah. And I hope they find a place to keep creating these shows, then where these shows can keep getting the showcases they deserve. Maybe they could do it at their circus. Very good. Of course. We didn't even talk <laughs> their about their connection circus. to their circus. <laughs> That's Start where it over. We're do doing it. it again. Yeah. Start from the top. <laughs> wow. That was a fun one, you know. That was great. Dear Playbills, thank you for listening once again. Mm-hmm. Thank you to our supporters at the Canada Council at the, for the Arts and our partners at the Crescent Arts Centre this season. Please keep an eye out for other Village Conservatory podcasts coming soon. It Takes Two is going to be dropping. This is a podcast that Jill and Daff are involved in heavily. Me, lightly, yep. Daff, heavily. <laughs> yeah, I am super excited for everybody to get to listen to the wonderful pairings that we've been able to put together from artists across Canada. People are doing puppetry. People are doing devised theater. People are talking about what it means to be queer, Jewish, and indigenous. It's all wonderful and amazing, and I can't wait for you to to meet these people and hear what they have to say about theater. Hell yeah. Please join us in a couple weeks when we're going to talk about (laughs) the Rocky Horror Show. Not the picture show. No. Don't you watch that. Don't you do it. In of this episode, I'm telling you. Don't you do it. <laughs> and we're going to have a very special guest. I'm so excited. Uh, Mr. Breton Lalama is going to be on our, on our podcast. He is a wonderful trans artist from Out in the Maritimes who recently wrapped up a production of the Rocky Horror Show yeah. where I believe he played Riff Raff. Riff Correct. Raff, absolutely. So I am very excited to hear his take on this show um, as a trans identified artist. Absolutely. Woohoo. All right. See y'all then. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Super exciting. We now have merch available. Visit spring.com and search monkeys and playbills to find mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, and more designs coming soon. 
Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. We wanted to give a special thank you to the Canada Council for the Arts for supporting this season of Monkeys and Playbills, as well as two other podcasts now joining the Village Conservatory family. Stay tuned for more details on both of these new shows coming soon.